the message that you need is not always the one that you want to hear, right? The question is, is there anyone who cares about you enough or is brave enough to actually speak up and share it with you? Would you turn with me to the book of Acts this morning? Acts, we're in Acts chapter 3. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what he said in Acts 1.8, yes? As we walk through Acts chapter 3, that's exactly what we are going to see happen. And as we do, we Christians living here in the precarious days of the 2020s have got to ask ourselves whether or not we're willing to speak the truth to a confused and weary world. Rather than just read the passage outright this morning, we're going to walk through it a few verses at a time. Would you look at verse 1 here? It says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. All right, one verse at a time maybe. Stop right there. Peter and John were Jesus' disciples. They were men who had walked and had talked with Jesus. They had been commissioned by Jesus to go out into the world and proclaim the good news of Jesus, to be witnesses, to make disciples. And along with the rest of the disciples, at this point, about 3,000 or so, they were devoting themselves, like we learned last week, to the preaching of God's word. They wanted to know God's word. They were devoted to the fellowship of believers. They were devoted to gathering together and remembering uh, Christ's uh, death, burial, and resurrection as they took communion. And they were continuously, as uh, some members are in the earlier uh, hour just did, they were continually praying together. And here in verse 1, we see their devotion to prayer once again as Peter and John go. It says it was the ninth hour. That was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They make their way over to the temple for the third and probably most well-attended time of worship of the day. Now notice that even though they were thoroughly devoted to Christ and to his people, to his church, they still worship at the Jewish temple. What's up with that? Well, for them, being a Christian, it wasn't altogether separate from what they had been taught their whole lives. The same God that they had been worshiping all this time and seeking to be obedient to, that same God to which they looked to then, they look to now. And they relied upon now, and they bent the knee to now each and every day. The big difference was that they now understood that God had come through on his promise to bring about a Messiah, the the anointed one. And by faith in Jesus, their relationship with God was now restored. Not only restored, it was secured. And so they're headed to the temple. Headed to the temple, and this is what happened when they got there. Verse 2, it says, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, which is actually a huge bronze gate, uh, and he was asking for alms of those entering the temple. Here's a man whose situation was rather hopeless. We don't know if he was homeless, but his situation was hopeless. From the earliest days of his life, 
when everyone around would have expected him to begin taking his first steps, it became apparent that something wasn't quite right for this guy. Time went by. What was at first a concern eventually gave way to the devastating realization that he'd never be able to walk. You can imagine the doctor visits. You would imagine, you can imagine his, his believing parents going to the temple and praying fervently, Lord, heal our son. And then as the years pass by, and those prayers don't seem to be answered, there must have come a point where, where he just accepted the fact that this is it. Does this man have needs? You better believe he does. <laughs> not only could he not walk, this man's living in a day where there aren't very many uh, desk jobs, if you know what I mean. Working from home, virtual meetings, that wasn't happening. <laughs> there were no social programs to care for his needs, to care for the disabled. There's no hope for survival other than to sit at the, at the place that is most likely to have a huge amount of people walking through, feeling probably rather obligated to be generous because they're going to worship God. What a way to live. Resigned to wake up each and every day with the same sad state of affairs. No hope of, of anything improving. And yet how many people today actually have similar experiences? It's not all that different. How many people, as they get older, they come to terms with the reality, this, this is the best that I, I can do. In fact, I better enjoy it while I have it because even that seems to be slowly pulled out from my fingertips. Needs? We got needs. But let's face it, this is, this is, this, we just got to make the best use of the time that, that, we, that we got left. It says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He didn't know to ask for anything more. This, this, is, this is the life he's living. I, I just need money. I need, I need money to get by. He had no reason to expect anything else. From all we know, uh, either he didn't recognize Peter and John or was unaware that they might be able to give him something more than what he was asking for. He had no idea that they were connected to the unlimited power source, uh, which would enable them to do possibly far more than he could ever hope for. How many people do you encounter? Do I encounter every day? They're asking something of us. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a favor. Maybe it's some other form of help. And yet they have no idea that you have the answer to a need that is far, far greater than that which they are presently concerned. Verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. 
and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Did this guy get more than he was asking for? Oh my gosh, this is absolutely shocking, right? This is completely life-changing. Imagine a lifetime of never knowing what it was to walk, of never having the freedom to move around on your own. Imagine how slowly the days would have just crept on by, hour after hour, minute after minute, watching people, watching children just go skipping, hopping, leaping on by, and then they're poking each other, and they're chasing each other, and maybe they're tripping over you, or trying to hop over you, as you just sat there, and sat there, and sat there. Maybe waiting for the day when your eyes would finally close for the last time and shut the cruel world out. That was this guy. That was this guy, but not anymore. Peter took him by the arm, raised him up, and instantly he realized that something had changed. If you've seen The Princess Bride, you know Billy Crystal's character, Miracle Max, and he says, uh, you can't rush miracle, man. You, you get rotten miracles. Not the case here. Immediately. This guy's strength was restored immediately. There was coordination immediately. There was dexterity even. The know-how to to move these things in the right way, allowing him not just to stand, not just to walk, but to begin jumping up and down and leaping into the air. (laughs) This wasn't one of those moments where you go, hmm, I'm not sure sure what's going on here. I'm not sure if something happened that was kind of special here. No, it's not one of those moments. This was undoubtedly, undeniably a genuine, bona fide miracle. This man wasn't the only one who knew about it. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognizing him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate at the temple. This was his thing, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, he clung to Peter and John. All the people, utterly, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And so you've got the solemn, pensive, prayerful atmosphere of afternoon worship in the temple completely shattered as this guy goes absolutely level 12 here, walking, leaping, praising God. The spectacle has just left everyone reeling. Shock, disbelief, it was shared by all. Gripped everyone within earshot. It, you know, you'd have the, the guys who said, you know, if I hadn't have seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. People were running. They're crowding in. They're dying to get a verifying glimpse of what they're hearing. Is this actually true? Is this actually real? Yes, it was true. And one after the other after the other discovered that reality. But how do you explain it? What's going on here? What could account for it? Luke records that people were filled with wonder and amazement. Some were astounded. Wouldn't you be? I would be. You know, just like in our times... Uh, this wasn't something that happened every day. The early Christians, they, they, they weren't faith healers. 
as, as we might think of these days. From reading scripture, it's apparent that this special, miraculous healing gift, it was something that only the apostles and only those closely, very closely associated with them possessed. So you've got 12 guys, maybe 13, maybe 14 or so, who had this special ability to heal. And even then, it was only when it lined up with the will of God. And even so, from what we can tell as we read the book of Acts and the rest of Scripture, it doesn't seem like these healings happen very often. And what's more, this is really interesting, it looks as if the only healings that the apostles did within the book of Acts was only on people who were not already believers. Hmm. So we hear that Timothy has stomach problems. My family is known for stomach problems. It's a terrible thing. I have one brother who is plagued, plagued with digestive issues. He's been on a special diet, the blandest diet for a whole month, and he's just he's suffering. Timothy had stomach problems. And Paul doesn't come to him and say, you know what, let's get you healed, brother, and then you can go on and you can do ministry. No. He says, take a little wine for your stomach. And your other ailments. Really? What's going on here? One of Paul's traveling buddies, a guy by the name of Trophimus, falls ill. Paul doesn't say, hey, Peter, I I need you to get over here. This guy needs a little shot of the spirit, if you know what I mean. And let's get him back up and running so I can continue on my missionary journey here. No, he says, the guy fell ill and he left him in Miletus. And so today... uh, there are a lot of people who claim to have some supernatural gift of healing, and so many time and time again have been proven to be just complete frauds or, or unchristlike counterfeits. You look at their lives and you go, okay, you might be, you might be doing some, some interesting things here. We're not exactly sure what's going on, but look at your, your life does not line up with this book here. Or in some cases, they're just doing all this very, very subjective kind of stuff. Psychological symptoms or imagined diseases that's very, very easy for people to think that they've been healed and then feel healed. Do, these, do, do healings actually happen? That's a good question. They do. I actually witnessed one about 20 years ago when I was in Kenya we prayed over a little girl who had a severe hearing problem. She had she, Green pus coming out of her ears. Could not hear a thing. And what woke up the next day, perfect hearing. God can and does do incredible things today. But the claims that people make that they have some type of gift of healing, well, it should leave us wondering why they aren't closing down hospitals. And why so many of them are found out to be living in abject immorality. And why there's such a lack of verifiable evidence that that a genuine healing is actually taking place here. But here in Acts, there's no denying that a miracle took place. A miracle took place here. The problem that this man had, it was well known and it was obvious. What's more, the miracle that took place, it was immediate, wasn't it? It was immediate and it was complete And there was no shortage of witnesses here. This man had been healed. 
And that's why the people are so perplexed. Things like this, they just don't happen every day. Sure, there was a man who, who for a few years, was walking around. He was doing some incredible things. But we concluded that he must have been under the influence of some demonic or satanic power. And we put an end to that. In fact, that was just a couple months ago. We put an end to that. That is done. Close the book. All this miracle stuff. It's not going to happen anymore. Another miracle? And in the name of that Jesus of Nazareth guy? This was a collision moment. It it was one of those points where what people were witnessing with their eyes, it it didn't compute with what they believed inside, right? In their minds. A worldview crisis was taking place here. It it didn't add up. Peter, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. But Jesus is dead, right? We, we saw that. And if Jesus is dead, how can one of his followers have performed a Jesus-like miracle claiming that it was done in the name of Jesus? It just doesn't make any sense. Were these guys wizards? No. <laughs> Were they some type of super spiritual men? Well, I don't think so. The fishermen, for crying out loud, you know what those guys are like. And that's when Peter speaks up. And I think this is the point where, where it's really important for us to stop and ask ourselves what we would have said if we were Peter at that moment. Imagine you had hundreds, crowds of hundreds of faces looking at you, wanting you to give an answer. You know many of them were among that crowd that that was shouting, crucify him to Jesus, right? Demanding that Jesus put to death. That was just two months ago. You also know that you've been called to be witnesses. To point people to the hope that they can have in Christ. What would you say to such an unstable, uh, easily incensed, sometimes a violent, possibly, group of people. What would you say to these people? And I think if this were me, there would be this great temptation inside to step very, very carefully, talk very, very softly, communicate in the least offensive way possible. There are a few directions we could take here. We could, we could do the, be the good news guy. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful place, plan for your life, people. I just want you to know that you saw something pretty cool here. God loves you take that approach. Or we could take a little bit more timid approach and we could say, hey, hey I, I know you thought that Jesus was a blasphemer here. Uh, don't, don't feel too bad though. A lot of people got that wrong. We don't want you to think actually that you are wrong. In fact, it wasn't even your fault. We don't want to hurt your self-esteem here, but Jesus is actually, he's actually God's gift. Hey, you just misunderstood. Could take the salesman approach. Hey, if you like what uh, you just saw us do to this guy, just wait till we tell you what we can do for you. There's the word of faith. Hey, uh, just so you know, you know, Jesus doesn't just deal in uh, ankles and feet. He can help your anxiety. He can help your depression, your financial issues, that mole on your back, uh, maybe even heal your marriage. You just got to believe and uh, put some, some coin. This guy was acting, asking for alms. We want a little bit more. Uh, let's uh, have some checks signed here. We have, a, we have a Venmo here. You can just swipe. 
You could do the get them on your turf strategy. Hey, you know, if, 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 if you want to know more, I'm not going to talk about it right now because I'm probably not the best qualified person to do this, but if we come to church on Sunday, we've got great coffee, we've got an awesome worship band, and a pastor who actually tells funny stories and is somewhat interesting to listen to. In fact, I only slept, fell asleep once last week. There, there, there are many roads that, that Peter could have gone down in that situation. He could have easily danced around the truth or spoken in, in non-offensive terms. He could have used this moment as an opportunity to tell people that Jesus, you know, he's just going to make your lives better. I mean, who wouldn't want to hear that? And how many times have we been in conversations with people where we've known that God's word has something to say or that the real answer to the issue was Jesus but because we feel it will be just too uncomfortable or too controversial or too off-putting, we bury it deep down and leave it unsaid. You know, when you think about it, the, the situation that Peter found itself in, it's, it's not all that different from where we are at these days. This, this is a collision point moment. It's a fork in the road moment where clearly there was an opportunity to speak into the situation, to speak up, to shine a light of, biblically, of a biblically informed worldview on a confusing situation. And people are there. They're hungry for answers. What's the explanation, Peter? What is the answer? How can this be? But because of the environment that we find ourselves in, the volatility of those who hold opposing views, or the shame that they are all too eager to dish on out, we're hesitant to speak the truth. It can be so easy to soft-pedal Jesus, to avoid speaking up, or, or just sit there in the corner hoping that another bolder, more, more, maybe more spirit-filled witness will, will step up, speak up, and, and actually be a witness. <laughs> we don't feel like we can tell it to people straight. They won't get it. They'll be offended by it. I, I, need to, I need to ease it in to the conversation. What I really need to do is just hang out with them long enough that, that, that there just comes a point where they're just going to beg me to tell them what I believe. That's what I'm waiting for. Then I'll lay Jesus on them it, gently. Maybe we're just waiting for the right opportunity. Maybe we're waiting for the perfect moment when the, the fish are just going to come actually start leaping into the boat, just asking us to take them home for dinner. <laughs> I mean, lead them to Jesus. But notice that's not what happens here in Acts 3. The miracle that took place, it didn't leave people begging for Peter and John to tell them about Jesus. It's not what they're begging for. It was a collision moment to be sure. They had questions. Many are scratching their heads. But they weren't begging Peter to help them understand the error of their ways. God had created a captive audience here. Was Peter going to speak up and speak the truth? No doubt in my mind that he's fully aware of the risk. What was he going to do? Look at verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you Yeah, Peter could have given it to them softly. He could have talked slowly. He could have talked carefully. He could have brought them along, eased them into the news, reduced the shock value, made them feel as comfortable as possible. He doesn't do that. Nor does he simply give them a a quick, innocuous answer so that he and John can escape a potentially awkward situation, maybe even dangerous, risky situation here. Let's get out of here as fast as we can. We're just going to say a word, and then we're gone. Instead, he comes right out and takes the opportunity to direct their attention and open their eyes to a need they didn't even know they had. And, And that we can assume they didn't want to even be told that they had. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. This is a throwback to when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and we're, they were very familiar with that. Peter makes it clear that the special power behind this miracle, it's not some foreign alien force here. It's not some demonic force here. No, this comes from God. In fact, this comes from their God, the same God. And not only does it come from their God, it comes from... Or God is the one, this same God, your God, is the one who actually sent Jesus. And in case we're not abundantly clear that speaking the the name of Jesus to this crowd, not a safe move to make. You and I might feel uncomfortable speaking the name of Jesus publicly in our day, yes, (laughs) But friends, we're living in a day, uh, we're living in a nation where there's still a slight regard. It's very slight, but there's a slight regard and respect for the name of Jesus. And we're living in a day where, where our own governor, <laughs> deceived as he is, apparently thinks that he's going to get brownie points by quoting Jesus as he puts billboards up that promote abortion. It's mind-blowing. We're living at a time when people like the President of the United States or the Speaker of the House of Representatives, they mistakenly think and pat themselves on the shoulder thinking that they are aligned with Jesus. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be aligned with Jesus in our day, but in Peter's day, that was not a name you wanted to mention. That name was anathema. It was more controversial, it was more hated than than any other name. It was the name of Jesus that the Romans put on that sign above that terrorized, bleeding, cross-hung body declaring that this Jesus hanging there is the king of the Jews. The Jews hated that. That's not my king. My king isn't that cursed one up there hanging on that tree. It was Jesus who made the religious leaders look like a, a laughing stock. Not only a laughing stock, but the vile children of Satan, John 8, 44. 
It was Jesus that had ripped families apart. It was Jesus whom they desired more than anyone else to be rid of. It was the name of Jesus that likely instantaneously boiled the blood of most of those worshipers going to the temple. Speaking the name of Jesus in that environment, it would have been like lighting a match in a room packed filled with old, sweaty dynamite. <laughs> it would have been like uh, worse than, than stepping into the middle of a, of a pride parade wearing a what is a woman shirt. This was volatile stuff. Don't talk about Jesus, Peter. Don't mention that name. Yes, these people, they, they, they got it wrong. Yes, they truly need Jesus. We'll give you that. But guess what? They don't know that. If you mention this name, you're not going to lead them to Jesus. You're probably going to incite a riot and either get yourself thrown in prison, maybe even killed. Have you heard those voices in your head? Maybe it's not just the name of Jesus that those voices warn you about. Maybe it's addressing some other topic that you know God's word clearly speaks to. And maybe it's that subject of abortion. You know that God's the creator and he's the ruler of all life. You know that it's, murder is a direct violation of his law, and yet you hear that voice inside telling you, keep your mouth shut, at least right now. Don't, don't speak about that. Don't speak about what you know to be true. It's not going to make you any friends. In fact, it's probably going to hurt your chances of later telling them about Jesus. Maybe it's human sexuality. And you know from the Bible that God intentionally designs people either male or female. And what's more, you know that marriage is something that God created to be enjoyed solely between a man, one man, and one woman. And you're apprehensive to speak about making your beliefs known because it's just such a controversial topic. People might, might gang up on you. They might label you. They might even try to cancel you. You don't need that kind of attention. Maybe it's about that anti-gospel, socialistic, and communistic idea stuff that's out there. It holds people captive. It denies Christ-like forgiveness and does harm to the very people it claims to defend. Maybe it's any number of other hot-button issues that those voices inside are speaking to you, saying, quiet down, settle down. Why is it that Christians... (laughs) who have been brought out of darkness into the marvelous kingdom of light, who hold in their hands the answer to the world's greatest need, who have the power of the Holy Spirit within them and have been commissioned by God to actually go out and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Why is it that we have become so hesitant about seizing opportunities to speak truth? I'm not talking about doing things that aren't right, things that are illegal. I'm not talking about throwing bottles through windows. I'm not talking about yelling at people or using swear words or even getting all hot and bothered. We're talking about speaking truth. Peter wasn't hesitant to speak the truth, was he? He comes right out and he confronts the crowd. He didn't have to. He could have easily given a quick explanation and moved on. Here's where he goes. He says, God sent his servant, Jesus. They would have known that servant. They would have known exactly what that word servant referred to. It refers back all the way back to Isaiah 52 through 53. The long-awaited Messiah. That's whom he's talking about here. 
He says, God sent him. You delivered him to the Roman governor. Pilate himself didn't find any fault in him. But (laughs) Peter points out, on the other hand, you denied him before Pilate. Way to go. Jesus is the holy and righteous one, he says. And yet, on the other hand, you willingly insisted that a known murderer be set free in his place. You killed the author of life. But look, God raised him back from the dead. That was the truth. There's no point in denying any of these accusations. Peter says that he and John, they're witnesses to this. William Barclay, he he summarizes what Peter's getting at here, and and he calls it the greatest crime in human history. That's what Peter is laying out here before his audience. You're all traitors. You're all traitors and murderers. You claim to be on board with God's program, yet you're the ones who didn't even recognize the key player when he showed up. You know, I'd like to submit that uh, this strategy is probably not recommended by most of the seeker-driven evangelistic playbooks of our day. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, though, Peter seizes the opportunity to bring up the most controversial hot-button issue of his time. And the modern evangelist would probably say, why, Peter? What are you thinking, Peter? Don't you realize you're practically sentencing these people to an eternity of torment in hell? They're going to be so turned off by your tactless, confrontational message that they will never be open to trusting in Jesus now. Years ago, one of my brothers uh, had accepted a full-time call to a youth ministry position at a church and he was going to proclaim the gospel message to his group of students, his new group of students, on a Wednesday night. And he was going to tell junior high and high school students basically why you need Jesus and, uh, and, and you need to come to faith in Jesus tonight. Well, one of his team members got wind of it and, and, and got in his face and insisted, if you're going to talk about sin We need to think about this very, very carefully. We need to go above and beyond to make sure the students feel as comfortable as possible. This is an abrasive topic you're going to bring up here. You need to make them very, very comfortable. We have hard chairs in this room. Let's get rid of the hard chairs. We're going to bring in couches. We're going to bring in soft pillows. We're going to turn the lights down low. And think very, very carefully about how you are going to introduce this, this topic and how you are going to share it with these students. It needs to be non-confrontational. You're going to turn them away, and they'll never trust Jesus. These youth leaders would not have been on board with Peter's words here. Maybe they feel a little abrasive to you as well. Can you picture yourself speaking the same way to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family? High school students, to, to your fellow students at your school. But the Spirit knew what he was doing in Peter and through Peter. He was going to take a big fat, permanent marker and draw a connection point between that event that everyone had been gathered around and were talking about to focus them in on the most important topic of all time, the one that makes the difference between spending an eternity in heaven or spending an eternity in hell. 
And he's using the most heated topic to open their eyes, open Peter's listeners up to the error of their ways. And then point them to their one and only hope in Jesus. Do you you see the connection points? Between those hot-button issues of our day and the eternal matters of the gospel of Jesus. Some will tell you that, that, that the gospel and issues like abortion and human sexuality and race or the economy or the environment, they are totally unrelated. I just finished reading a, a book by a Christian author that claims that one of the reasons that all of these warped ideas in our world have become so pervasive is because Christians have made an idol out of preaching the gospel. And if you read on, you, you, you find out that, 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 that he means the way they're preaching the gospel, and, and there's some nuance there. But just the idea in itself, I completely disagree with. The gospel of Jesus is intimately and inseparably tied to the issues that our world currently faces. If Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life, then all matters of of direction and truth and life are related to him. And so if we're talking about the environment, if we're talking about what people label as climate change, then we're talking about a world that God has created, that he made good, that has been damaged by sin, that is, is groaning for the revealing of God's people. And is groaning to be set free from this, this bondage to corruption. That's Romans 8. If we're talking about racism, then it's people that have been made in God's image. Who have turned away from their good creator. Who have fallen hearts now that are bent on loving self and hating everybody else. That's why there's racism today. And these are people whom Christ has laid down his life for. Who, who says, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. We, we could go on and on, collision point issue after collision point issue. People are, are asking questions about these things. They're talking about these things. But what an opportunity we have to speak truth into these things and point them even beyond the need that they're addressing right then and there, to the greatest need. The gospel is not the problem. It's the fear of speaking into heated issues for the sake of ultimately leading people to the gospel. That is the problem. Here in Acts 3, the collision point was, how on earth could, could Peter and John be able to perform such, a, such an undeniable, uh, awesome miracle in the name of a man whom we just put to death? And that's where Peter takes them right to the eternal matters. And he draws the connection between what these people had just witnessed and what the disciples had witnessed. Well, Peter and John were witnesses to all of the horror of the crimes that these people had committed. Peter wants these listeners to know that they had just become witnesses. You are witnesses of the power Jesus is working in this man. So he says, to this we are witnesses in verse 15. 
and his name, by faith in his name, has made this strong, made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. That was undeniable. Just as they had witnessed that undeniable event, so was the reality of the evidence that this Jesus, whom God had sent, their God had sent as the Messiah, was the exact one that they had been waiting for. The truth had been right in front of them. They were just blind to it. And that's where Peter goes next. He says, and now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but God foretold But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. You should have seen it. The signs that Jesus was who he said he was, they were all there. God made it as plain on the nose of your faces, the words spoken by your own prophets. But they had been blinded. Blinded by lies. The same way so many people in our day are being completely blinded by epic falsehoods that are being perpetuated throughout our nation and throughout our world. What is the message that people need? Is there any hope for those who have ventured so far down the rabbit hole and have this this pile of, of bloodied bodies in their wake? Is there any hope for these people? The people to whom Peter was speaking certainly had the most precious blood on their hands. What did they need to hear? Was it come as you are, uh, come just the way you are? There's truth in that. Certainly there's truth in that. It's because God loved the world that he sent his only son. And yet many Christians today are so concerned, which is getting people to pray a prayer of salvation, getting them through the door is such a desperate concern that they fail to make clear that coming to faith in Jesus does not just mean trusting in him, but turning from that old life of rebellion. And so rather than being truth tellers, what some evangelists have become are bait and switch masters. Come accept Jesus into your life right now. Later, we, actually, probably someone else will tell you that God wants you to to turn away from that old sinful life. Leave that behind. Clever strategy, not the way that Jesus did it. Not the way that John the Baptist did it. Not the way Peter does it. All of them with one voice speak the same message loud and clear And that is, repent. Peter says, repent therefore. Turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Is there a harsher, more severe, more directly confrontational word than that? Repent! That means turn away from your old bad way of living, your old bad way of thinking. It means turn around, get on board, and in line with God's program. Clearly, this was the argument that Peter was making here. Rather than recognizing that the anointed one that God had sent, rather than recognizing him, they sent him to his death. And even as they were standing there watching the result of the miracle that had just taken place in Jesus' name moments before, they were convinced that they had done the world a favor by taking Jesus out. They were believing a lie. 
is not unlike what we're seeing in our world today. Rather than recognizing how the creator made us male and female in his image, we bought into a lie that we can be whatever we feel like. Rather than acknowledging that human beings have been created precious and valuable and, and have intrinsic, tremendous value, we've convinced ourselves that they're disposable. If they inconvenience our lives, if they cause us uh, a financial burden, emo- emotional uh, distress, if they interrupt our social uh, plans, especially if they have not yet been born or, or, or maybe they're getting along in years, we should be able to do away with them. Rather than looking at our children as precious and impressionable, as potential-filled and, and, and delicately forming lives, we think we can push them towards irreversible drugs and procedures to make a quick buck, lots of bucks, and push them push forward our twisted agendas through them. And just like it was crucial for people in Peter's day to hear, so it is vitally important that those in our day who are deceived in our time hear loud and clear the call to repent. We cannot forsake this call. They need Jesus, not because he's going to make their lives nicer or easier or less worry-free. They need Jesus so that their sins might be blotted out, wiped out. This is the message that people need, isn't it? They don't want to hear it. They don't want it. Of course they don't want it. Because recognizing your your sin needs to be blotted out, needs to be wiped away, that means that you're a sinner to begin with. I don't want to hear that. It means that there's something wrong with you. Something needs to change in you. The direction you're going is the absolute wrong direction. It means that you've been believing the wrong things, <sighs> believing the wrong things, headed in the wrong direction. Man, doesn't that feel good to the old ego? Not only that, it means you're guilty. Destined for the outpouring of your maker's wrath. You're in desperate need of a turnaround. You need to turn away from what is false and filthy and turn back to your creator. And the only way that you can do that is not on your own effort. It's not by your own ingenuity. Your creativity, your generosity is through Jesus and Jesus alone. This isn't the message that people want to hear, but it's the only one that they need far more than anything else. We don't get there by shying away from those difficult conversations or by leading people to think that we, we basically agree with you. <laughs> and we get there by going there. We get there by stepping in and stepping up. We're told not to do that. We need to do that. We get there by courageously speaking out in the power of the Holy Spirit as witnesses are called to do. It's difficult to sit in that box. And to look a criminal or a murderer in the eye and testify the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Sure it is. Difficult. Might be one of the harder things in life. But this is what's required of witnesses. Faithful witnesses. They speak up. They speak out what is true. In verses 20 and 21, Peter goes on to open the eyes of his captive audience to see that Jesus is actually the answer that you've been searching for all along. They've been longing for a day when Israel would be restored, peace would be restored, their oppressors be thrown off, Israel made great again. 
When the promised Lord, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, Isaiah 9.6, would come and restore all things, make all things right. Repenting and rejection, uh, repenting from their rejection of Jesus and turning to him for the forgiveness of their sins, that was the path to precisely that. He says, repent therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. They should have known this. Moses talked about this. Peter continues, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is what Moses says. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. What prophet is he talking about? Peter goes on. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him all proclaimed these days. Your prophets were talking about here and now. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. He says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him first to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The path of blessing, it's not just accept the blessing, and blessings here all over the place. Oh, it's so wonderful to be in this life, roses and flowers and bunnies hopping. No, 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 no. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The repentance is critical. You don't keep going your same direction and experience the blessing of God. It requires turnaround. The message is clear. This is God's plan from all along. This is the way history is going to be played out. God sent his son Jesus through the line of Abraham so that all the families of the earth might be blessed. You can be the first to know the blessing that your creator has for you. By turning from that wickedness, embracing Jesus. If you don't, as Moses said, you can be utterly destroyed from this people. The stakes are high. The need is great. Far greater than having feet and ankles restored. Far greater than knowing the answer to how did this miracle take place. Far greater than knowing how to care for the environment. Far greater than knowing how to overcome poverty or discovering personal significance and identity or figuring out that elusive equation to personal fulfillment and inner peace and, and self-esteem. All of those things matter. In fact, all should and, and, and can be addressed, but all of them are mere shadows of and actually directly point, directly connected to the greatest need, the need for which every single believer has been called to give an answer for. Opportunities are everywhere, aren't they? They're everywhere. We truly live in a weary and confused world. We see it every day. We get very upset about it. I get upset about it. People are wondering what the answer is to inflation. Who's going to take power in the seats of government coming up? How are, they, how are we going to stay well with these supposed 300-plus variants of COVID-19? They're out to get you. What about the abortion debate? What about racial issues that are hot in the headlines? What about the gender reassignment surgeries? What about the power grab on religious 
liberties. Friends, if Acts 3 tells us anything, it's that Christ's witnesses must not be silent. But in the face of a confused and ideologically hostile and shame-hurling, finger-pointing, threat-making culture, we must speak the truth, declaring right from wrong, and that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? Lord, we love you and we thank you. You've called us to yourself, which is incredible. We are honored. Father, I personally am blown away that you have called me. Because I know myself a lot better than these people do. You've called us together, though, as the people of God. Those who have faith in you here in this local little outpost here in North Orange County. May we, Father, be faithful to the, the work to which you've called us. May we be witnesses. May we love people enough, care about them enough to put ourselves at risk, step over the line completely in your hands, and speak what is true, pointing them to how their greatest need, the one that they may not even be aware of, how it's met in Jesus Christ alone. We love you. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you will continue the work that you began this morning as we, we just scratch the surface on this stuff and your spirit would lead us in truth in the hours and days ahead and you would mold and shape us by the power of your Holy Spirit to be the people that you have called us to be. We love you and pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus of Nazareth, our living Lord.